why don't you name five top five things you barbecue at home? Top on my list of things that I barbecue at home, turkey legs. That's like my holiday go-to for Christmas, Thanksgiving. I'm like, I'm a turkey leg fanatic on the big green egg. I do love a good spare rib, like a good rack of pork ribs. I also, my son's kind of obsessed with chicken wings. So I do find myself making chicken wings a lot. Pork butt is kind of a go-to. We'll actually run lunch specials at the restaurant with smoked pork butt and... This is a tough one because I only have one left. I haven't named anything in the beet family. I did a brisket the other day, which was really good. But I also love like grilled salmon. And I also named no vegetables, which I do a lot of. So you sound good. We're ready to rock. <laughs> hey, everyone. I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you listened before, we're glad you're back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or possibly do some good today as these chefs inspire us. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that... This episode is brought to you by us, our merchandise. Otherwise known as Merch. Heard. Hi, Ian. Everyone, our executive producer, Ian. Hey, Cappy. Is this the same merch that I see Jacques Papin wearing on his Instagram? Why, yes, it is, Ian. Same merch Wolfgang Puck has, and Michael Simon, and Rachel Wright, Yes, 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 yes. Wait, wait, and me. Yes, 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 Ian. It's the same merch. We are a little biased, but we love our merch, and apparently other people do too. So if you want to check out our super soft t-shirts and hoodies and hats, all you have to do is go to beyondtheplatemerch.com. We'll also link to it in the podcast player that you are currently listening on right now. Again, that's beyondtheplatemerch.com. Enjoy this week's episode. I think that was perfect. I kind of like that we did that. <laughs> that was great. That was actually great. <laughs> yeah. All right, go pick up your kids. All right, today's guest is a mom chef, restaurateur, and TV personality. She was born and raised in Los Angeles, California, and has cooked her way through some kitchens on the West Coast and East Coast. She became the youngest sous chef at the renowned Michaels of Santa Monica at age 19. You were 19? I was Jesus. Just a baby. And the youngest female chef to ever cook at the James Beard House at 22. She was the winner of Top Chef Season 14, the first winner of Food Network's Tournament of Champions, and has brought home a number of other titles. She and her husband, business partner, Nick Roberts, own Playa Provisions in Playa del Rey, California. These days, you may catch her on Food Network's Barbecue Brawl and Discovery Plus Beachside Brawl. Plus, she uses her voice to help end childhood hunger in America by ensuring all children get the healthy food they need every day to thrive, which I love. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with my fellow No Kid Hungry Leadership Council member, Chef Brooke Williamson. Thank you. That was quite an introduction. Appreciate there it. There you go. I have to tell you, I kind of feel like an ass because I probably have seen you at a hundred wine and food festivals, but I was standing right next to you for like five minutes with Rocco after the tribute dinner in Sobe this past February. And I'd, I don't even know if I realized it was you because you were like in a dress and your hair was down and all that. And I walked away. I was like, oh shit, that was Brooke. In costume. Yeah. <laughs> so Something intrigued me when preparing for this talk. When you go to your website, there's an about page like a website has, and there's an eat page for your restaurant and a consulting page and a contact page and all that good stuff. But then at the end of that, there's like a really big box that says donate. 
which I thought was pretty extraordinary of you to do that. And as I mentioned right before we started, we started the podcast to show that there's more to a chef than just a plate. They prepare for someone. Everyone we've spoken to for seven seasons gives back, and we like to highlight that. So we usually end here, but I actually want to begin here because you're a little different than a lot of chefs. So let's kick it off there. You work with a number of different causes and organizations. And as I mentioned, you're on the leadership council for Share Our Strength, No Kid Hungry. And there's a ton of chefs that do a ton of work for them. But like I said, you're a little different than most. How did that come about? You know, I can't even remember the first time I started working with them. It was just some natural progression of working in the industry and being connected to share our strength through events and such. But I would say probably, I don't know, five or six years ago, I started getting very involved with them. I mean, I've worked with them for 15 plus years, but the work that I've done with them over the last maybe four to five years has been really significant in in so many ways. I've done some lobbying on Capitol Hill on lobby day with them, which was definitely a different experience from anything that I've ever done working with any charity that I've ever worked with in in my entire career and really gave me some insightful firsthand experience working with lawmakers and people who actually make changes. What motivates you to give back? It feels like the most obvious thing to do with my time. I don't know. I think that Over the course of my career, my perception of being successful has shifted a lot. If I were to look at where I am today, if I were to be even back at that sous chef position at 19, looking at where I am today, I I would say to, I would have said to myself, I've become successful. I've done all the things that I set out to do in my career at this point. But I think that, you know, over the last 10 years or so, maybe even more, my perception of success has really shifted into being in a position to be able to make changes and make positive changes to the world. And my immediate surroundings, my not so immediate surroundings, but being able to give back really sort of became the goal, right? There there are only so many goals that I can attain without it feeling selfish. And then there's a point where I say to myself, why am I gauging my success on the things that that returned to me. And I think that at this point in my life, my idea of being successful is being able to be in a position to change someone else's life. That's awesome. Is there a recent moment where giving back or using your voice had an impact on you? I will say during the the pandemic, there were some moments that really showed me that people getting involved changes the lives of not only the people that you're hoping to help, but also the people that are doing the work to provide the help. There was a moment during the pandemic where we were completely, it was during the lockdown and we were completely shut down to diners other than takeout orders. And through our website, you can place orders online and create modifiers for items that you're placing orders for. And we had a woman in Texas or a couple in Texas place an order through our website and write a note in the modifier that said, we live in Texas, we won't be picking this order up, but please give it to someone else in need. We just wanted to help. And they really wanted to help us as a restaurant, having followed our journey through what we were going through at the time. They wanted to give us an extra couple of dollars, help provide enough business in a way to 
maintain staff and, and help us. But by doing so, they were not only helping us, they were helping our employees. They were also helping the people that we ended up being able to donate this meal to. And I posted about it because I was so touched by the fact that someone was placing an order from halfway across the country, knowing that they would never pick it up or see this order. And I posted about it on my Instagram. And within an hour, there were hundreds of orders from all over the country. It was really the most remarkable thing I've ever seen in my entire career. And chills. I know. And then all of a sudden it went global. There were people in Japan, in Africa, I mean, all over the world placing orders. And it became this like pay it forward movement where we were able to put together enough, enough meals to donate to our local fire station, lunch and dinner to provide meals for hospitals, which we had been doing, but not with our own funds. And it was really just so inspiring and so touching to watch this happen over the course of a few days. And it became this sort of viral sensation and other restaurants started experiencing it. And it was really so incredibly inspiring to be a part of. Yeah, that's incredible. Okay, so you wrote an op-ed in the LA Times, speaking of pandemic, titled Restaurants Have Become Pandemic Scapegoats. My last one is struggling to survive. People talk about doing something or posting or merely posting something on social media, which isn't necessarily bad. It's good, quite frankly, usually. But (laughs) where does the confidence to actually do this come from? Like to write an op-ed in a major newspaper? Well, one, I didn't know that they would actually... Joys of op-eds, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I suddenly was handed an editor and I was like, oh, okay, so I'm writing this for the LA Times. But I don't... I, You know, there were so many stories being written about where people stood on dining in, dining out, on restrictions, on government assistance, on lack of assistance. There was nothing being written from the perspective of the restaurant owner, from the perspective of the employer, of who... So many of us were going through probably the most difficult time in our entire careers. And that says a lot for a restaurant owner. We don't live incredibly easy business lives. But I just, I, you know, I kind of had hit a point where I was talking to like my son's friend's parents and they kind of had no idea what we were going through. And I was sitting here thinking, what's the point in talking about it? Everyone's going through the same thing. Everybody knows what we're going through, but it wasn't true right? There were so many people who had no idea. I'm just in my immediate community. We were all talking daily about the trials and tribulations of of what was going on. But I think the general public kind of had no idea what we were going through. So I sat down and I wrote something. I, I do fancy myself a bit of a decent writer. And I got my point across. Of course, it was a very different op ed by the time it was published, but it was the same sentiment. And, you know, I hate to talk about myself. Well, that's not true. My husband would actually say I love to talk about myself. (laughs) But I'm not a complainer. I'm not someone who will ever admit that I'm tired or can't handle something. I don't whine about problems at work. But this was something that I felt like was big enough to make the public and potentially the local government aware of. Did you learn anything like about yourself in the process? Yeah, that I hate complaining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but sometimes in order to get your point across, you have to sort of drill in where the point is coming from. It's so interesting that you say that. How do you balance your philanthropic world and your business world? 
they really go hand in hand. The hospitality industry is all encompassing and we don't just thrive on providing experiences for the general public or the people that are dining in our establishments. I think that we thrive on providing positive experiences for everyone. And when it is overtly apparent that's not possible for certain people, I think that we go above and beyond to create that opportunity. We know what it's like to struggle as an industry. And I think that if we have the opportunity to turn that feeling around for someone, anyone, then I think that that that's what we do. That's just... That's how we live our lives in this industry. But at this, so at this point in your career, which you still have, I'm sure, a ton in your mind, on your plate, et cetera, et cetera. How do you do, like event in the event world? How do you decide what you're going to do or not do? Who do I attach myself to? Yeah, like how do you decide like what, what event you're what going in- to go to or what cause, maybe what cause you're going to donate a dinner to? You know, I think for years I kind of said yes to everything because I felt like that's that was the only option because I, you know, I want to do good. And how could I possibly say, no, I can't be a part of this event or I can't donate to this event. But at the same time, there, there needs to be this reality check of, of if you're spreading yourself too thin, then are you actually making an impact for anyone? It's like, I say, I know how to do a lot of things sort of well, (laughs) but do I do anything really well? So if I can sort of create that atmosphere for my philanthropic world, I now feel like that's really important. I will donate to, you know, cooking lessons to my son's school and and organizations that I I am attached to. But there are only a couple of organizations that I really work closely with now. There's only so much of me. So I, I do try and reserve sort of the best of me for those organizations that I'm very close to and I work very closely with. Was any of the charity this charity work or giving back instilled in you like growing up in high school we like had to do a community-based project junior senior year i mean not necessarily not more so than i think anyone else i think that really a lot of my desire to give back came from the industry that i've worked in for so many years. Okay, so let's go back to high school or even earlier. You grew up in LA. Tell us about like little Brooke Williamson, like family How life. little? <laughs> Growing up. Growing up. I grew up in Los Angeles. My parents are both artistic people. My dad's a photographer. My mom was a ceramicist, still is. And my sister makes jewelry. So I guess you could say I came from a very artistic family. My mom made dinner five nights a week. We sat down for dinner every night at 6.30. She experimented in the kitchen, but like by no means was a professional. Were you into food? I was always into food. I think, you know, at the age of like five or six, I started watching cooking shows. My parents would sleep in on the weekends. And, and I would be the only one up in the house in the morning on Saturday and Sunday. So I would get up in the morning and I would go into the TV room and I would maybe watch the Smurfs or Gem in the Holograms, but mostly I would watch Julia Child and Jacques Pepin and the Galloping Gourmet. And those were my shows. And then I would watch them from start to finish. And then I'd go into the kitchen and I'd experiment, probably from the age of like six or seven. And by the time I was in... Maybe sixth or seventh grade, I was writing 
papers for English class on how I wanted to be a chef when I grew up. Really? Do you remember the first thing you cooked in the kitchen? Yeah. From the Betty Crocker cookbook, I made pancake. I remember that very vividly because we had a fruit and vegetable garden in the backyard. And I used to go out there and pick stuff that was ripe. And I would incorporate whatever was back there into a pancake. Oh, California. <laughs> Sounds so cool. Cooking seasonally at the age it, of yeah. seven. <laughs> Did dad cook or and or was your sister into food at all? My sister was not really into food. I mean, she wasn't not into food, but she wasn't. That wasn't a passion of hers. My dad never cooked. And then around the age of 15 or so, my mom made dinner. We sat down for dinner and somebody had a complaint about something and she got really frustrated because she said that someone always had a complaint about what was on the table. And she said, you know what? I'm done. I'm done cooking for you guys. She got got really fed up and she wasn't kidding. She never cooked another dinner after that night. And my dad, by default, started cooking. And now my dad is the only one in the house that that cooks. Really? My dad loves cooking. And if you ask my dad, he taught me everything that I know. (laughs) But literally didn't step foot into the kitchen until I was maybe 15 years old. That's so wild. Wait, I have a question. Does your mom make like plateware and stuff for your restaurant? Yeah, my mom, not for my restaurant. No, she she doesn't use molds. She does everything by hand. So like... Christmas presents and birthday, there's always pottery involved, but I don't, I sell her stuff at the restaurant, but I don't plate stuff. That's so cool. And what kind of photographer is your dad? Like, what does he shoot? He did a lot of musician and album cover photography in the 70s and 80s. He was a photographer's assistant. And I remember I used to hang out at the studio and I have so many incredible memories of like Hart and Mick Jagger and like the sort of most impressive musicians that that I possibly could have met when I was a kid. That's so cool. And so very Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> so through high school, you're in high school, you're still like enjoying cooking. And did you go to culinary school or college after high school or no? I took a class, I think when I was 14 or 15 years old at Epicurious. It was a cooking school in on Melrose in West Hollywood. And I did really well and turned into an assistant teaching classes there, maybe when I was 16. And then I really just started working in restaurants and never went to any formal culinary school. The plan was to go to culinary school. I actually applied to a CIA in Hyde Park, New York, and they required a certain number of actual restaurant hours worked. So I got a job on Sunset working for a chef named Ken Frank and in the pastry department because that's all he had available. And Ken was the one who actually talked me out of going to culinary school. Interesting. And were you in, Is this was this high school years you worked there? Or that was, no, that was just after high school. And so you were like eight, 17, 18. Mm -hmm. And did you go from Michael's? So I started at the Argyle Hotel working for Ken Frank on Sunset. And I worked there for about, I don't know, a year, a year and a half, and then went directly to Michael's and was hired for the Hot Apps Station. And within a year, I was a sous chef. Wow. Okay. So take us through some more of the spots. How long were you at Michael's? So I, I was at Michael's for two years, maybe. And then... And then I left Michael's and asked Michael to actually send me somewhere in New York. Because at the time, I kind of felt like you were 
legit if you didn't have a New York restaurant on your resume. So he was actually good friends with Danielle and sent me to Danielle. And I stodged there for a bit and then came back and got a job. Say here. I worked at Luke for a minute, filled in for a cook who was on leave. I applied to Campanile and Mark Peel actually hired me as his sous chef. And then I simultaneously was offered a job as an executive chef somewhere else and ended up taking that a place called Boxer in West Hollywood. And then I went from Boxer to a place called Zach's in Brentwood. And that was kind of where I say my first like real, I mean, technically I was the executive chef at Boxer, but it was a tiny little spot and I wasn't there that long. So I would say that Zach's was my first sort of dive into executive chef responsibility land. Okay. So wait, when did Top Chef happen? Years later. <laughs> Top Chef happened 10 years ago. You were done with Brentwood Restaurant. Like, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So my my husband and I, who was my sous chef at the restaurant in Brentwood, we opened our first restaurant in Venice. I think I was 23 or 24. And then we opened a place that was called Amuse Cafe. And then we opened a place called Beachwood. And then we opened a place called Hudson House. Hudson House is named after our son. So we opened Hudson House when our son was just before he turned one. And Nothing like opening a restaurant with a... was <laughs> <laughs> the most exhausting year of my yeah. whole life. And then I did Top Chef. So there were many years of working before I dove into TV. How did Top Chef happen? Did someone like talk you into it? They have talent scouts who, especially, you know, we're talking 10, 14 years ago, I started getting called for Top Chefs. I think I, I said no three or four seasons before I committed to it. But, you know, there wasn't and isn't kind of as big of a pool of female chefs that especially that apply for Top Chef. So they had people that would do their research and kind of go out and find you. That's what happened. Okay. So we mentioned Michaels of Santa Monica. I love this story. The same year or maybe the year after you were born, our season premiere guest this season was Jonathan Waxman. He became, he was, I think, like the first chef of Michael Santa Monica in 79. Yeah. And now 20 years later-ish, you became the youngest sous chef. What did that feel like at age 19, being a sous chef there? I mean, what does anything feel like at age 19? I don't know. Right? Were you like, like you nervous or like excited? <laughs> like you deserve the, the chance to prove yeah. yourself. I think I didn't understand the magnitude of all the steps of my career. I didn't understand the magnitude of being the sous chef at Michael's when I was. It felt like I've worked really hard and, you know, this is where I prove that I can do this. Every step of my career at, at that point was taken with uncertainty that I could actually get the job done. And then it was a matter of like, okay, now you have to actually do it. And somehow I always did it. And that was just sort of another step. All these jobs, the uncertainty was in your mind? Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I been, by the time I was a sous chef at Michael's, I've been cooking professionally for what, three years. So did I deserve that job? Absolutely not. But did I think that I could do it? A thousand percent. So then it was just a matter of like proving to everyone else that I could do it. And somehow, somehow I did that. <laughs> Wait, when did this uncertainty in your mind turn into certainty? I think when I had been cooking for, I don't know, maybe still not. <laughs> no, that's impossible. <laughs> I've just been cooking for a really long time now. So I know that I can sort of cook my way out of any situation. 
by from experience, but I don't know. At, at no point did I ever feel like I could do it better than anyone. I just appreciated the opportunity to try. And I was given that opportunity several times. So many questions. I'm about to break Chef Waxman's confidence in me right now because I reached out to him to have him ask you a question. But then he texted me and he said, call me. I was like, "Uh uh-oh. And so we talked and he goes, look, don't tell Brooke this. (laughs) He goes, I think she's one of the top five chefs in America. I was like, Are you serious? Really? He's like, I first tasted her food about six or so years ago, and we were in Mexico. I was judging Top Chef, and it was blind. I didn't even know I was tasting her food. And he goes, if I remember correctly, it was like a watermelon tuna dish or something. <laughs> and he goes, the flavor, the texture. And he's like, what she did to do in a competition is remarkable. And he goes, I've had chances to eat her food. He's like, I just love the way she cooks. It reminds me of myself when I was younger. And it's just really straightforward with like this artful sleight of hand. And she's Uh. just so chill. And he just like was going on and on. And he's like, look, he goes, Michael. I was like, she was so young when she had, when she was sous chef there and all that. And he goes, Michael hired people that weren't cookie cutter. And he goes, you know what? Brooke is like a very smart chef. And I was like, well, that's a hell of a compliment. Seriously. Wow. You just made my whole year. (laughs) (laughs) Do accolades like in general, or I mean, I could probably guess the answer, but like from colleagues like Jonathan Waxman mean anything to you? I I mean, a thousand percent. I I would say that so many, I'm in so many situations in in terms of like interview or or competition TV where they want to introduce you and impress people. and, And you have to tell them like all of your accolades, right? Like, what have I done? What awards have I gotten? This and that. Those mean nothing to me, right? That means that I did a good job in in a tough situation and I happened to do potentially better, maybe not even, than the person that I was competing against. Who cares? Compliments like that from Jonathan validate in my brain that is constantly questioning whether or not I'm a total fraud all the time. (laughs) Completely validate why I do this. And it's because I love it and... The recognition from a chef like Jonathan in just in the fact that he remembers something that I made. Let me tell you that tuna watermelon salad was something that I made that never made it to air. That was cut out of the episode of Top Chef. So here, watch that. He experienced it and he remembers it and never saw it again. And the fact that he remembers it to date is like blows my mind. Yeah, that's so cool. I love that. That was really cool. Thank you for that. Yeah. We've had, now I'm curious, back to something you mentioned. There's, we've had a lot of people on the podcast, a lot of winners, let's say. Stephanie, Top Chef winner, Kristen Kish. We had Manit on, a Tournament of Champions winner, and others. So you're a Top Chef winner and a Tournament of Champions winner and yada, yada, yada. You've won plenty more. What's your mindset going into these shows? I'm always a total nervous wreck. I always fear that I will walk out and be given ingredients and go completely blank and not know what to do with them. It has yet to happen. I mean, it's like happened partially to the point where I like sent myself into panic because I didn't, I couldn't think of of something that felt so obvious. 
But I think what helps me in a competitive environment is the fact that I've had anxiety as a person my entire life. From the time I was a little girl, I had panic attacks. And at the time, you know, when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, that wasn't something that people talked about. It was something that nobody really understood. I couldn't really put words to how I felt. And therefore, there was no explanation. There was nothing physically wrong with me. So I spent the next 10 years or so hiding my anxiety from the world and living in sometimes states of pure panic while presenting myself as a very calm, cool, and collected person. And if you were to ask me, like, what is the one thing that helps you in competition? I think it's being able to, from many years of practice, being able to maintain my composure and perform at high levels under an enormous amount of stress. And I know I, a lot of chefs have anxiety. We're in a very demanding, very intense line of work. But my anxiety goes deeper than like stress level. And I do think that it has sort of given me this defense mechanism in my own brain to just maintain my composure under stress and think clearly, right? I'm the person you, that you want by your side when the world is falling apart. <laughs> That's really interesting. So when you go in, is it like you just put your head down and cook or do you go in like with... Honestly, the one place that I've never had an anxiety attack is in the kitchen. It is the place where I feel most at home and most comfortable. So I'm really in a competitive environment. Yes, there are time restraints that, that normally aren't there in, in real life, but I'm doing what I feel most comfortable doing. That's where I feel most at home. So I don't think about the cameras. I have terrible stage fright too. And I don't even think about the cameras when I'm cooking. I do what I, what I know how to do. And you go like challenge to challenge, if you were like dish to dish. You're not like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to win. There's no point in thinking that way because there's or there's always a chance that you won't get any further than where you are. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, not that this is about me, but I feel like I get stuck in like both of these zones of like thinking huge picture, but also I need to focus more on like step by step. And I was reading this thing yesterday about a football coach, a college football coach and how he developed this thing he calls the process and like all these elite athletes follow it. It's like, don't go into a game saying like, I'm going to win the Super Bowl. We're going to have the best record of the season. He's like, the Super Bowl is made up of the whole season. And the whole season is made up of a game. And a game is made up of hours. And the hours are made up of plays. And he's like, focus on each play. Yeah, there's no point in focusing on a bigger picture because the bigger picture is where you are in the moment. There is no bigger picture in competitive cooking. Generally, if you don't do well, you're done. There are people who are like, I remember on Top Chef, people were like, I'm going to save this dish for when I really need it. But you may not have the opportunity to ever make that dish if you don't use it when it's most important. And I think that the things that are most important in competitive cooking is it's always in the moment. How does this mentality reflect on your businesses? It's a totally different job, career, life, <laughs> world. <laughs> There's actually... I feel like very little crossover between my TV life and my restaurant life. They're very different worlds. Okay. So I mentioned Manit Chohan and many others like her. Your husband is also your business partner. He was your sous chef, as you mentioned, the restaurant where you worked or met. Is it kind of like once Brooke's sous chef, always Brooke's sous chef? <laughs> are you asking me or are you asking him? <laughs> 
No, we actually, we make for better partners than I think most people do in life, business partners. I think that we have very different skill sets. We have very different ways of thinking. We have very different taste in a lot of things. And we're just very different people. And I think because of that, it could either have gone terribly or it could have gone the way it did. And I think that there are very few people who I think that I could work with on a daily basis and feel completely supported and supportive. How do you handle each other's like feedback or critique? He doesn't spend a ton of time cooking and creating anymore. So there's actually not a ton of crossover of like, hey, how do you like this? Do you like this enough to put on the menu? He kind of lets me run with the creativity of the menu design now. And he deals with a lot of like the stuff that a creative person often doesn't want to like employee drama (laughs) and maintenance. (laughs) We are definitely there for each other's opinions on things, but oftentimes the opinion uh, is of something that, that the other one doesn't take the reins on. I mean, you guys together, correct me if I'm wrong, together you've had a number of restaurants like open and close for a number of reasons. I'm sure always a shitty scenario. How are you both at handling that? Like, how do you work through, how do you work through that? At the beginning of the pandemic, we closed three restaurants. And I will say that that we are great in a crisis situation together. We've been together for a very long time. We've been together for 20 years. And at the, the times where I want to sort of crumble and fall apart, he's there maintaining the structure. And it wasn't necessarily that way when we were in our early 20s. We had a restaurant our first restaurant that we opened that was massively struggling because of liquor license issues. And there were definitely moments where we couldn't stand each other. And at that time, I called the glue of the restaurant business the strongest relationship glue that you can possibly have. It was, I think that even kids probably wouldn't have kept us together at that time. And we went through a couple of really rough years with each other and made it through that because we were business partners and we kind of had no choice but to sort of stick together for a while. And I think since then, we've learned how to deal with things in a much more mature way. And we've also been through a lot more. So things kind of don't hit us as hard anymore. And we try not to bring emotion into the business and vice versa. So I think that just separation and organization of how we deal with things has just become a lot more mature. Yeah. That's cool. I forgot if I read if this was just him or both of you love the notion of like conceptualizing a restaurant. Do you guys want more restaurants? He loves he loves a restaurant opening. He does? <laughs> God, it's so funny how people in the business like love a certain aspect, hate a certain aspect. I hate the chaos of it. I'm I'm like I'm a control freak. I like to be organized. I like to go into my day limiting the number of variables that can apply to that day. I'm a list maker. I have 17 things on my calendar that need to be either moved or deleted at the end of the day. People can't stand when I delete, like when we're done with this podcast on my calendar, I'm going to delete the calendar invitation so that it's no longer there. But it doesn't mean that I didn't do the podcast. That's so funny. I do that with certain <laughs> I'll, things. I'll like finish a meeting and people will be like, is everything, was everything okay? Like, yeah, it's over. Yeah, why? Oh, because you declined my calendar invite. I was like, well, we already had the call. <laughs> That's so funny. 
Um, I like that. I like like a clean piece of paper or a clean calendar at the end of the day. If anyone from Apple is listening, maybe that's a nice feature on the iPhone. It's like when you're done, (laughs) when that meeting's done, it's like slash through it or something. Maybe just decline it to me. Yeah, slash through it. There you go. But Nick, on the other hand, has 4,200 unopened emails (laughs) on his phone. And I don't know how you go to sleep at night. I think that that sort of lays out where I am with a restaurant opening. I feel like I'm having a heart attack for months on end. Things feel chaotic and out of order. And that's where Nick really thrives. That's cool. So like, do I, am I dying to open another place? Probably will happen at some point because that's sort of the trajectory of the restaurant business. Restaurants have a lifespan and you kind of need to be prepared for the next step. But I will say that is not my favorite part of the business. Is there a concept you all like would love or talk about doing? Many, but I will say that the Hawaiian fast casual poke musubi shave ice concept that we closed at the beginning of the pandemic to Kiko Kiko, that is a concept that that one, I love, and two, it's food that I still crave from my own restaurant, which is unusual. We actually used to like order delivery from that place when we didn't have time to go just to eat it. So I will say that bringing back that place for selfish reasons of just being able to eat that food again <laughs> has crossed our minds many times. Where does that come from? Just be, just you love that food or it's just the food that i love to eat it's the i just love the like clean dependable asian flavors of a perfect pokeball that's cool all right let's do a little speed round action and then just a few closing questions we'll wrap up number one what did you have for dinner last night last night i had to shoot a little video for a seafood company and did a I had to do an Instagram reel as a salmon recipe. And so I ate the leftovers from my salmon, which was like a fennel and tomato sofrito with roasted salmon and like a tahini sauce. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Chicken broth. I love the smell of just like a simmering, either roasted chicken or simmering chicken stock. How about a smell in the kitchen you hate? Interesting. I don't love the smell of roasting lamb bones. What pisses you off in the kitchen? Ego and lack of communication. What makes you happy in the kitchen? A happy team. A team that feels accomplished at the end of the day. Uh, Name a go-to snack in your pantry. Right now, I'm kind of obsessed with this pineapple, this super sweet honey pineapple. (laughs) What is it? And water with like fresh fruit. But also these like, have you ever had these? They're called snacklin. They're like puffed they're supposed to be like vegan pork rinds when i was doing this with manit and i asked that question she did the same exact thing that you just did she reached forward and grabbed the bag yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm kind of obsessed with these things this is the teriyaki flavor but they're made out of yucca and mushroom and they're like they taste like pork rinds like the texturally they have the sort of Essence of pork rinds. Those look good. Delicious. But they're vegan. Yeah. Delicious. They're called snack I'm going to check those out. As seen on Shark Tank. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Wait, yeah. what was the pineapple? Was it like dried pineapple you were talking about? No, hold okay. on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, my head don't reach that far. No, these pineapples. Oh, like, okay. It's a honey glow from Del Monte. Are those the pink ones? Honey glow. No, it's not the pink one, but it's just as sweet and like low acid as the pink ones. The pink ones are dull. This is Del Monte. 
but it's just it's literally a whole pineapple but i'm eating them like i'm eating like one a day oh my gosh i have to look for those which i definitely don't have them in chicago probably okay last question summer grilling season is here although it's always in california do you have a favorite thing you put on a roll or bun as a kid i have these very the only time my dad would cook when i was a kid was he would split and grill hot dogs and I love like just a split down the center and grilled open, like charred barbecued hot dog. Love it with all the stuff on it. And I am going to put ketchup on it because I'm from California. And I know that in Chicago, you guys would poo poo everything about the ketchup on the hot dog. But I enjoy it. You know it, what? So. I put ketchup on my hot dog also, even growing up here. And my father actually worked for Vienna Beef, the people who make the Chicago style hot dogs. And I still put ketchup on it. So see? It's delicious. That's why. <laughs> Do you know, I think it was Heinz or someone did a really funny spoof where they made hot dog sauce and they put ketchup in like uh, a <laughs> bottle and called it hot dog sauce. And they were putting it on hot and dogs and going around it. on the street doing like a man on the street thing. And people were like, oh, this actually tastes pretty good. Oh, it's ketchup. Because <laughs> ketchup. <laughs> ketchup is delicious. Yeah, it was pretty funny. All right. Couple closing questions. I'm going to start with a very important one. You have small batch, which is like the ice cream part of the restaurant. I really want to know what flavor ice creams you serve at small batch because I'm guessing they change often and I didn't see it. Yeah. So they do change frequently and definitely a lot of them are seasonal. But I will say some standards that we always have a tea ice cream, either Thai iced tea is a common one. And my personal favorite is Earl Grey for the tea ice creams. We do a mint Oreo, which is delicious. And, and there's some like fun nostalgic flavors. Like we do a chocolate malt and, and like a peanut butter chocolate. But we do some fun stuff. Like right now, we always have a couple of sorbets and vegan options. The cheesecake ice creams are really good too. And there's usually like a seasonal fruit cheesecake. But there's also like a passion fruit guava one right now that has uh, little coconut jellies in it, which is delicious. Lots of fun stuff. We have one that, that's called Cereal Killer, and it's generally just uh, Lucky Charms ice cream with like Lucky Charms folded into it. I was trying to, I was teaching my kids, I have like three-year-old twins, and I was trying to teach them how to drink the milk out of the cereal bowl, you know, and they loved it. And now they sit down for breakfast, like, I want cereal milk. I'm like, no, it's, it doesn't work like that. Like, <laughs> you can eat the cereal first. <laughs> All right. So, although I do think you can probably buy I'm it. I'm sure now. Christina Tosi yeah. has as a line of cereal. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. You said you love creating things that make people happy, and you found that food genuinely does that. What's the last thing you cooked or ate that made you smile? I mean, I cook all the time. Oh, you know what? I was craving for months and I actually was doing a lot of competition cooking a couple of months ago and had in my head that at some point I might make egg drop soup. Like sometimes you get things in your head and you're like, oh, this would be great in a competitive environment because it's fast and delicious and unexpected. And so I was... I, I, at the end of the run of shooting, I never made the egg drop soup. So in my head, I was like, I'm really kind of dying to, to eat and make egg drop soup. Last week, uh, sorry, the week before last, my husband was under the weather. He had COVID, but we didn't know it. And then we all had COVID and we didn't know it. And I made some chicken stock and turned it into egg drop soup. But I made 
pork and shrimp wontons to go in the egg drop soup. And it was kind of the last meal where we were all smiling before we all realized that we had COVID. <laughs> but yeah, this, that's it. You started to talk about it. I was like, oh my God, I just saw this on your Instagram and I pulled it up. And it was delicious. And my son had a bowl and he like was a little unsure of the consistency because he like had never had egg drop soup. And he was like, what's all this white stuff in there? I was like, it's egg. And he took a couple bites and he was like, this is the best meal you've made in a very long time. And granted, we all still had our appetites and our sense of taste. That's so, is that chili oil on there? <laughs> There's a little chili oil on there and just super straightforward, like shrimp and pork wontons, so but sitting in a bowl of like very gingery egg drop soup. And it was, and that was homemade chicken stock as well. It was delicious. It. Does your son, is he into food? He loves food. I don't know that he loves cooking. He likes cooking. He loves food. He loves to eat. Okay. Last question. Your philosophy of keep it simple, don't overcomplicate things, which I feel like we've picked up on pretty nicely throughout this time. Do you have a favorite simple pleasure in or out of the kitchen? I mean, so many. I love a perfect glazed donut. Don't put a bunch of stuff on my donut. I don't want M&Ms. I don't even want sprinkles. I just want like a really straightforward, delicious, fluffy, raised glazed donut. I also love like a bowl of vanilla ice cream with hot fudge. Hot fudge. All these things that I'm talking about are dessert. Hot fudge to me, it needs to be hot fudge, not like chocolate sauce. It needs to be something that will like firm up and become fudgy when it gets cold. I love like a really simple, crunchy, like Caesar salad. <laughs> I don't know, like the, some of the most, I would say that like my last meal is probably going to be ramen. But I almost don't even need all the stuff in it. I just want like really good broth and really delicious noodles. And I'm pretty satisfied. Awesome, Brooke. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Pleasure was mine. Thank you. Thank you. This was super fun. I appreciate it. It was great. Thanks for all the share our strength work. Hopefully we cross paths again on one of the leadership calls or meetings or something, but super appreciate everything you do for them. Because I think similarly to what you said, it's not until you actually use your voice for doing some of that stuff that you realize you could like just really make a difference. I didn't start doing TV because I had ambitions of being famous, right? I, actually quite the opposite. I think you've, you'll find that most people that work in the kitchen for years are doing so because they don't like to be on stage. And never did I ever imagine that my career would take me to a place where people on the street would recognize me. In, in my head, the only way to validate that, because people recognize me for being me, not for doing, not for acting, not for being someone else, for being me, which, and the only way in my head to validate that attention is to use it because I, I have the voice now. So why not use it to create a better place and space for others. And it, there, there aren't a lot of people with that kind of opportunity. So taking that opportunity and, and turning it into something productive feels like the only thing to do. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again to Chef Brooke Williamson. Find more on her at chefbrookewilliamson.com. To learn more about Share Our Strength, No Kid Hungry, go to nokidhungry.org. We'll share a link to those websites in the episode notes and at beyondtheplaypodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplaypodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is also on social at BT Plate Podcast. 
This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetton, Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan Me. Our music has been composed by Goldfor. Find him at iGoldfor. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you have a moment, we'd love and appreciate it if you could rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast to Beyond the Plate, brought to you by our friends at One Hope Why. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.